over the course of human history. There's been Noah's Ark, savior of mankind. St. Francis of Assisi, foregoing his wealth to be savior of all animals. And Curtis Sliwa, guardian angel and savior of New York City, protecting both man and beast. The Curtis Sliwa Show presents... Curtis's Ark with Nancy Sliwa. From bipeds to quadrupeds and everything in between. Now, with Nancy Sliwa, here's Curtis Sliwa. Once again, out of the many hours that I do at WABC, where the acronym is always broadcasting Curtis, this hour that you can hear every Sunday, 11 to 12, live, or catch it in the podcast form because we've been doing it over a year. So there are dozens of podcasts on animal welfare issues featuring Nancy and yours truly. You go to WABCradio.com, but it is the most requested, listened to, and interactive of all the shows that I do at WABC. So uh, are we ready to get another one in the can, Nancy? Yes, we are, Curtis. All right, first off... Uh, uh, on behalf of both you and I, I want to wish our new legal partner in our demolition team, Rudy Giuliani, a very, very happy birthday because uh, he couldn't have been kinder in terms of giving you props for your legal expertise. Yeah, actually, I heard that. So this is great. I'm, I'm, I'm considering that an official endorsement of my practice. So yeah, yeah, well, look, using that. you know, everybody gives me the credits. It gives me the credits. Oh, wow. You're and I keep reminding people that it's your deep dive behind these LLCs that protect uh, businessmen and businesswomen who are making money off of us, the taxpayers. You've co-busted them. And now Rudy has joined us because there's a lot he can add to our investigations of these crooks. No yeah, other, absolutely. No absolutely. other way to put it. Uh, first off, also, uh, people are inquiring how your health is doing. Uh, you know, we've informed them that you've had a few setbacks. How are you feeling this weekend? Um, well, I'm feeling I'm feeling good. Uh, you know, definitely. Uh, it's, you know, I'm not doing the the type of hours you're doing, so I am actually just taking it a little easier. So that's helpful. Uh, yeah, I'm feeling better. I'm feeling better. And uh, some of our listeners have remarked to me they've seen pictures of the six kittens that came into <laughs> the world that you, uh, like a midwife, helped uh, Whiskers, the female cat that you rescued from the uh, uh, animal care and control center that was scheduled to be euthanized. They're running <laughs> all over the place now. Yeah, it's it's funny how it's funny how quickly they change, and you know now they have so much energy, so. Uh, you know they're they're still getting their footing, but they pretty much have figured out how to climb onto every surface and you know also get down safely. But you know I'm just still surprised like seeing them in places where I'm not accustomed to seeing them. And you know one thing they like to do, I think I mentioned maybe last week too, but they like to uh, you know practice their I guess their predator skills. So they're they try to sneak attack us as we walk by. So you have to, like, you know, be now mindful of these little kittens who are, like, will jump out from uh, out of nowhere and try to jump on your foot. <laughs> so that's that's a new thing. And I noticed that the adult cats, of which we have many that you've rescued, 
they don't seem at all to mind these little critters that are like just jumping and leaping over them and going under them and wrestling with one another. It's almost as if they're very patient and very tolerant. I mean, I would say the the normal cats, you know, who, who like to be playful, they've been waiting for these little ones to, you know, run around so that they can uh, interact with them. Uh, you know, some of the other ones that we have that are just tend to be more by themselves, you know, they, they treat them like normal, like to just ignore them and, and keep it moving. But, yeah, no one's bothering them. And I would say the ones who are younger that we have, uh, they're very excited to now be like uh, playing with them. So. so the question I got at some of the Memorial Day parades that I participated in today, especially College uh, Point, because it was a time at the end, they, everybody gathers around and the speeches are given. They want to know when the kittens might be available for adoption. So what's going to be the process that you go through uh, before we start adopting them out? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, within the, you know, upcoming, um, say, like four weeks or so, uh, you know, would be a good time, you know, start to, you know, vet people and, you know, maybe see uh, who's interested in adopting. Obviously, a pairs is always ideal. Uh, you know, they're about six. I have to look specifically. I think about six to seven weeks now. Uh, they're not, you know, they're not eating from the mother. So, you know, they have that independence going to them. So you want to give them a little bit of more time, but... You know, now their personalities are coming out, so we'll start showcasing them, you know, further on the social media. And, again, now that they have personalities, it's much easier to start describing them and really figure out which ones work better together. Because right now it's just, uh, you know, they're all running around chasing each other. But they're starting to develop very clear personality traits, which is, you know, which will be helpful in finding a, a home for them. And we'll let our listeners choose their names when uh, you begin posting individually their photos. Uh, we'll, we'll ask our listeners to come up with names. We'll have contests for each of the six of them and then come up with finalists. And finally, uh, they'll have names of their own. Yeah. So no, that, that'll be exciting. And you know, it, it took me a minute to figure out which ones were, uh, girls and boys. And I, I think literally up until a couple of days ago, I was so certain that it was, uh, three and three. And today, I'm pretty sure now it's four girls. So, yeah, I think it's four and two. No, no, hold on, Jay. How, <laughs> how can you be so confused? One day it's a male, next day it's a female. Uh, you know what it is? Because they're so, they're so small, so it takes a while for you to be able to tell. And, you know, nothing really develops in them, like, all around. So, you know, and especially because of the, you know, again, they're they're tiny, the the color of the fur they have, it's, it's hard to really get a, like a good look. And I think now I, I determined one that I thought was a boy is actually a girl. Now you've been doing this for decades. Uh, have you ever come across a transgender cat? I don't even know what that means. Well, you know, <laughs> it identifies as a boy, but it has the um, anatomical construction of a girl. I mean, I've never had a cat identify themselves to me, so I can't say. I don't know. There's always, know there's oh, Nancy, there's always a first. There's always a first. <laughs> and then yes. one last thing before we go through the topics here on the Animal Welfare Hour. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. When I made my pit stop this afternoon, uh, grab like an hour or two of sleep, 
I have my feet up on the table. You put something on the table, and every one of the cats <laughs> bum rushed it. I have never seen the cats that yeah. desirous of eating what you put out. I th- can we share that with our listeners? I, it, it was absolutely amazing. <laughs> Old, middle-aged, young, they were jumping on that table. Yeah, it, it's the temptations treats that they that they like. So, you know, again, they're accustomed to having them at certain times. And I've been waiting for, you know, like this order to come in and it had them. So, you know, because I didn't have any, I went to the store today and I just got like one little bag of them. And, you know, again, because they, they, because it's like overdue when they, they're accustomed to having them, every single one, I mean, they hear it. The, the minute you start to open the bag, it doesn't matter. It's like they could be asleep you know, every single one wake, wakes up. And again, because now it's they haven't had it, um, you know, on the schedule they're used to. Now there's the immediacy of I have to get in front of everyone else so I don't miss out on this. Maybe one opportunity that we're going to have for the whole rest of the day. <laughs> so that's when they get a little bit more aggressive. Like they want to make sure they don't miss it. Now, those temptation treats are advertised now on TV. Uh, when we've gone to a nearby D'Agostino's and Gristidi's. That's always the one cat product that they never have enough of. It sells. I I mean, it just flies off the shelf. Is there catnip in that food? I mean, why is it that so many different kind of cats love those temptations? Well, actually, the, the, the favorite flavor that our cats like is one that's called catnip, and it does have... Um, you know, like some element of that. Now, again, I'm not sure exactly how they get that in there. That's that's more of a scientific question for the for the good people at Temptations. But supposedly it's close enough to catnip, and I can say it, it draws them more than any other flavor. So maybe there is a connection because the same way that the catnip really attracts them, I mean, this one really appeals to them. Even a Norwegian forest cat that you rescued in Bay Ridge, uh, uh, Athena, the matriarch uh, of the colony, she never comes forward to eat. She waits for all the little ones and the other cats to eat first because she, she thinks she's above it all. She's very pretentious. <laughs> she's very omnipotent. But when you put those temptations out, even she jumps up on the table and starts uh, sort of like uh, bumping uh, some of the others out of the way. Yeah, and, and it's dangerous when she gets involved because – She's like the size of like four of the cats. So, yeah, they they really have to get out of the way when she moves. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you haven't gotten that product, I have never seen cats (laughs) just go cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Like when you put out these temptation treats, uh, they're available uh, in stores, supermarkets. But, hey, give a temptation treat to your cats today. Uh, They'll really appreciate it. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. First story, this went viral around the world. California, a man stopped, got out of his car, and was helping ducks, a mother duck and her ducklets, cross the road. A car, a vehicle smashed into him and killed him while he was in the process of doing that. This uh, sort of buttresses the story that we talked about last week during the Animal Welfare Hour when a guy got out of his car to remove a turtle from the roadway so that it wouldn't be uh, splattered and hit and killed. 
and it caused like a 10-car pileup behind him. Uh, how would you suggest that these kind of uh, situations be handled? Well, so th- this situation, uh, you know, that happens seemed to be a little bit more, you know, uh, like a, it was safer. So, so, for instance, what we were talking about last week, uh, where the guy stopped in the left lane of a highway, that was a dangerous situation and really didn't make a lot of sense. Now, here what happened was, um, you know, the individual, he, he saw the ducklings crossing the road, and obviously, you know, there's um, like four-way type traffic, and there's crosswalk. So within the crosswalk, obviously the rule is you always stop for pedestrians. So he's there. And what happened was, by all accounts, you know, he was doing it in a very safe manner, and, and all the other cars had um, stopped around him to, you know, sort of like applaud him, and, oh, this is great, isn't this a wonderful deed? People were taking pictures. And, you know, because it had like a corner right there where the person now the person who wound up hitting him was a 17 year old girl. So, you know, again, it was just an unfortunate um, situation where, you know, again, I, I, I would, I wouldn't suggest that people don't assist animals when they can do so safely. And by all accounts, he really was doing so safely. It just seemed like a really unfortunate situation. And what's, you know, what's really makes it sad too. It's like the witness account they had was this young 12 year old boy who was, you know, he was like, again, he was saying, oh, great job. This was, you know, what a wonderful thing that he was doing. And he, you know, it's like just that sort of sincerity in him. It's like, oh, he was the nicest person in the whole area. The only person who was stopping them. And it was just like so unfair that it happened. So, again, it was just an unfortunate situation. But, um, you know, obviously remembered very, like, well. I mean, I, I don't think anyone is, you know, is thinking there was a fault except for, you know, such a beautiful act, and it's just sad that it ended this way. Our number is one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. With the start of the Memorial Day weekend and the opening up of the beaches, uh, there are predictions that there are now more sharks than ever before in the waters uh, off the beaches. Uh, great white ones, hammerhead sharks, all different kind of sharks. In fact, um, immediately uh, Bruce Blake went out in Nassau County. Uh, Steve Malone is a compatriot in Suffolk County. Uh, the Parks Department of New York City, some of the mayors along the Jersey Shore have talked about using high-tech drones to track these sharks to make sure that swimmers and boat users and others stay out of the harm's way of potentially these uh, jaws-like creatures. Is this an overreaction, or do you think it's the appropriate action? Well, I mean, again, it's uh, I'm sure there's a little bit of, of both in there. Uh, what's, what's being done, you know, aside from, you know, the, the advice is kind of odd, you know, just telling people uh, stay away from areas where seals are, things like that. But, you know, what they're employing is drones, so again, I'm not sure how the you know how helpful the drones are going to be because obviously in a situation where you know people are in the water, I think you probably just need a little bit more bodies. I mean, it may, I think they're trying to um, adjust for the fact that they don't have as many lifeguards. So yeah, of course you can you know tell people you know go at your own caution. I don't know how prevalent this is, however. With the amount of whales that are going to be, you know, that are washing on shore and continue to wash on shore, I mean, anything that's going to attract them in terms of a food source, I think is going to be a problem. And since the whales are coming up on shore, I think you're going to see the sharks getting a lot closer as well. Yeah, I don't 
Can't quite figure this out. When I was a kid, long before you were a kid, and maybe even when you were growing up, everybody wanted to be a lifeguard. Young men, young women, they want to be a lifeguard, right? Everybody goes to the lifeguard. Everybody thinks the the lifeguards were the cool kids, right? You know, they put that white plaster of Paris on their nose. They have those goofy hats on. They're sitting there. They're staring out into the ocean. But it was like they were cool kids, right? I mean, you were out there in Bohemia, so you were out on the South Shore, near the South Shore. Uh, I was obviously a city kid. But everybody back then wanted to be a lifeguard. And at times, the lifeguard's responsibility was, instead of watching the girls go by, to focus on whether there's sharks. And they would call you in. If they saw a fin come out of the water, they would basically scream and demand that everybody get out of the water. No, Now nobody wants to be a lifeguard. What do you yeah, make of that? You know, I, I'd have to think some of it maybe has to do with just the way that the beaches are. It may be that you're not going to command the same respect that you did in the past. And maybe there are a lot of people who are apprehensive, you know, rightfully so, because you do have, you know, I mean, let's face it, there are a lot of places where there's not a lot of police presence, and the beaches can get a little rowdy sometimes. So if you're working there, this is your job. And then you have a bunch of kids coming over, and they decide to make their their day's mission to mess with you. I mean, there, maybe there's a you know some element of people not wanting to take the job for that reason. Hmm. I don't know. It just strikes me as odd. But anyway, we we push on. Killer whales, orca killer whales, which at times will track dolphins, porpoises. <laughs> and other whales, and then they just move in. Like Shamu El Jefe, Chris Christie, hopes to get on the debate stage in this uh, these Republican presidential uh, matches as they go from state to state, and he wants to eviscerate the competition like he did little Marco Rubio in New Hampshire in 2016. Did a big favor for Donald Trump and went on to win the nomination. But there were these killer whales, these orca whales, it came together in a pack and attacked boats to avenge the loss of their matriarch. Could you explain that? Yeah. So this, yeah. So in Spain, um, apparently, this group of orca whales was, you know, um, very aggressively attacking uh, some of the the boats that are there. Now, apparently, this has been going on for several years now because. There's a lot of incidences that's happening between the orcas and the boats off of the coast. But what they call it is that there's um, a they call it a critical moment of agony. And this is this describes something where that the matriarch of, you know, a pod of all of these orca whales, when something happens to the matriarch, uh, you know, and in this instance, they're they're stating it would be something like it was hit by a boat. Uh, you know, it was injured somehow. All of a sudden, that disrupts the entire pod, and what happens, you know, because it's like a sign of aggression, the whole group is at risk. This matriarch goes about attacking the boats. Now, the other orca whales are following suit in the behavior because it's viewed as a threat. So, again, this is something that's probably, you know, I wonder how much, um, you know, we may see of that along the the shorelines for us as well. I'm not sure if humpback whales have the same behavior, but. I mean, think about it. If if you have a threat and the threat is the boats here, they are going to look at them as, you know, something aggressive and they do have to go after them. So, 
apparently, you know, they've, they've sunk several boats, um, this group of orca whales, but this is what they're saying that it's because of. You know, they have too many direct I- impacts with the boats, and now they're viewing the boats as threats, and they're going after them. I could easily see somewhere near Malibu, Steven Spielberg is saying, you know, I did Jaws 1, Jaws 2. He apologized for that because he said uh, people became so frightened of sharks that it probably led to the killing and demise needlessly of sharks because humans uh, became fearful of sharks as a result of the movie. But the demands of Hollywood are for more pictures, more violence, more uh, sort of like uh, fear, fright, hysteria. I could easily see him now making a film about these orca uh, whales off the coast of Spain attacking the yachts, attacking fishermen, you know, in their fishing boats. This this is amazing that the, the orca killer whales would actually pack up together and seek revenge against people in boats. I mean, they're, they're high, highly intellectual creatures. So, I mean, rightfully so, you're viewing a threat. And, I mean, your, your territory is being infringed on. I mean, this is where they live. I mean, they're being invaded more or less by just this, this boat traffic. So, I mean, it's, it really is, um, you know, I, I could see why that, that response would happen. And, and I'm, I'm sure you're going to see a lot more of it. Now, speaking of Spain... There was a story you brought to my attention because uh, John and Margot's son, John Jr., uh, a while back told his father he would never eat octopus again because of how much intelligence they have, how human-like qualities they have. And for Greeks not to eat octopus, that's a, that's a major departure. But there have been demonstrations uh, off the shore of Spain and it has to do with octopuses. Can you explain a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, what they're they're trying to do there is uh, create one of the biggest uh, captivity captive farms uh, where they're trying to breed octopus for you know food purposes. So the people who are opposing this again, it, it is based on the fact that the high level of cognition that that they have, and what they're also doing is they're putting um, three million of them together in, uh, you know, like a singular pool, singular water vats. And w- the nature of the octopi is that they're solitary predators. So in a natural habitat, they would constantly be attacking each other. So it's saying like it's similar to, um, you know, putting tigers uh, together in a cage. It's like they're going to prey on each other. They're going to kill each other. And because they're so highly intelligent, they're going to be recognizing the threat and constantly be trying to escape. So it's this really horrific type of environment to be breeding animals. And again, what's happening is, you know, there's no protection for these animals, uh, you know, before them growing them. So again, it's this weird area where same like the United States, uh, there's very little uh, protection given to something that's considered food. And that's exactly what this is. So it's part of the diet. Oh, it's, it's on the, the rise, but now they're recognizing. Well, it may be food, but we have to, uh, you know, be cognizant of this. So there's a lot of um, backlash against having this, and for good reason. For good reason, three million in one tank is ridiculous. Three million octopus. I guess that's mm-hmm. octopi in the plural. Yeah, octopi. I think so. Yeah, correct. In one tank. In one. 
in one tank. And and again, they're they're predators. So right away, it's it's um like it's yeah, it's like they're constantly going to be attacking each other. And you know, again, and then there's nowhere for them to go, and they're going to try to escape, and they have the ability to try and do so. So yeah, I mean, it just sounds like a really horrific, uh, horrible scene for these for these creatures. I don't think people uh, totally understand how intelligent the octopus are and how they have, like, human-like traits uh, that are attributed to them by people who have uh, done major studies of them uh, deep down in the sea, very similar to what we discussed last week when I described my first first experience uh, with pigs uh, out in uh, Lockport, Illinois, the compound of my grandfather and grandmother on my dad's Polish side, Anton and Wanda, where I would be charged when I visited them with taking the, the uh, table scraps and slopping the hogs, feeding them. And the incredible intelligence that these pigs had. And apparently the octopus may even be even more intelligent than the pig. Yeah, and, and, and again, it, it's great that there are, um, you know, these movements to recognize, you know, what what this is. I mean, again, it's a food source. So why would you not gear toward having something that isn't going to be, you know, resulting in so much complete trauma? I mean, this is ridiculous when you can, you know, just choose to, to go another route. I mean, it doesn't have to be part of the diet. I mean, that that's where the wonderful thing about us being – uh, you know, human, uh, the higher intellect, we can actually think, oh, well, that, it doesn't matter what it tastes like. You just do what makes sense, what's smarter to do. So it really is important on us to be, uh, you know, mindful of these creatures because otherwise they're going to be suffering a lot of torment. Our numbers 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. A few years ago, we went to the Oyster Fest in Oyster Bay, North Shore of uh, Long Island, not far from where you grew up over in Bohemia. And uh, we saw sacks and sacks of oysters and clams that had been uh, sort of uh, put into the water where they were sort of cleaning the water because of, of the way they survived. It's, it's almost like they're a filter for the water. And it reminded me of this story that these people who knew nothing about oysters uh, bought a farm, and they now have two million oysters. Uh, what is that about, and how is this beneficial to uh, life uh, in uh, the waters, the tributaries, uh, uh, the oceans, uh, and how can you manage that many oysters? Yeah, well, actually, so it's interesting. This is the, the location where uh, these people purchased. is in Shelter Island. So again, the, uh, you know, these people, they had no idea about this industry, this business at all. And, you know, they just happened to, um, visit, uh, you know, a restaurant that was, uh, in Long Island City. And, you know, they were learning about oysters and they visited this one location and a business happened to be, you know, selling its entire business, um, you know, as a going business. And they decided, okay, well, let's just, um, you know, give a go at it. So it really was just a, you know, on the, on the spot type of decision, but they've, you know, and they, and they previously had been living in Park Slope, but, you know, after learning, um, you know, a bit about the oyster business and apparently what's really so good about them is that they have the ability to cleanse the waterways. So what they saw was, oh, it's not only an ability to have a job and make money, 
but we're doing something that's actually going to have the ability to, you know, clean up some of the water in New York, which was important to them. So, you know, they, they started, um, you know, the business, they took out a loan, they were taking a lot of courses and, you know, within a short period of time, they've actually been uh, quite successful. I think, you know, if you, if you're willing to put the time in to do it and, you know, they bought a going business, which is great. And, you know, they're very passionate about it. And, you know, when you're passionate about what you're doing and, you know, again, it's been so far, it's been, it's been great. When we come back, we'll go to the phone calls. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. This is the Animal Welfare Edition. You can hear it every Sunday live from 11 to 12, exclusively here on WABC featuring Animal Rescuer, my wife Nancy, and yours truly, Curtis Lewa. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The Curtis Lewa Show presents Curtis's Ark with Nancy Sliwa. Now with Nancy Sliwa, here's Curtis Lewa. To the phones we go, and it's Phil in the Bronx. Your turn to be heard here on the Animal Welfare Hour here at WABC, Phil. Yeah, hi. Good evening to both of you. Um, I've got a question for Nancy, since she's a lawyer. Um, uh, first of all, if you rent an apartment in New York City, I understand that some buildings are pet-friendly. Okay, so with those buildings, can they legally place a restriction on the number of cats that you have? Like, for example, I've got I've got two cats, okay? And some landlords, they only want... They don't want any dogs, but they're willing to take a cat. Uh, but I have two, and I can't really get rid of them. I can't. It would break my heart because uh, it, it would just be tragic for me. I, I, I've had these cats for so many years. Uh, what about it? You know what? Um, okay, so as far as I know, if it's any sort of a private landlord, the reality is they can put restrictions on you know, pretty much anything within their their premise. Uh, you know, obviously the, the NYCHA buildings will have different regulations, so it is it's a little bit tough. I like and and that that's part of the problem too. There there's so little protections for people. I mean, I don't know if it's you know worthwhile for something like having um, registering pets for things like so. For instance, if you have them registered as a emotional support or, or anything like that. There is technicalities with things like that, which is why I think sometimes um, it could make sense to look into things of that nature because it kind of makes it more difficult for them to come at you with that. Unfortunately, it usually if it's a private landlord, they can put any types of restrictions they want to. Um, yeah, and that's and that's a problem, and that's a problem with pet ownership in New York City. I mean, it's it's so at the whim of the landlords. Let's go to Giuseppe, Joe, and Jericho. Your turn to be heard here on the Animal Welfare Edition of WABC, Joey. Hey, Curtis, Nancy. Uh, first of all, I want to say uh, I challenge ACAC to cease and desist the demonic evil practice of killing animals. I also challenge them to contact every American military active duty member, American reserve duty member, 
an American military veteran in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and Massachusetts to adopt the dogs and cats off of death row at ACAC to waive the fees and, I, and also to provide medical attention for the, the first six months or a year after the adoption. I also challenge everyone, the sounds of my voice, courtesy of Mayuchi and Marconi, to do anything they can, not just today, tomorrow, American Memorial Day, every day. Go to a VA hospital, East 23rd of Bay, of Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, that Brainless Biden and Harvard Harris attempted to close up. Go to a VA nursing home in St. Albans, Harvest. The state VA, New York State nursing home is on the same grounds as a federal nursing home. Out in Northport, Long Island, by the Hamptons, and also in Woodbridge, New Jersey. Bring the toiletry case, American-made, change of clothes, a card, personalized. Make a difference for American veterans and animals to be trained as service animals. Let's keep our American military active duty, reserve duty, and American military veterans and our animals, dogs, and cats, all God's creatures, alive. And stop the slaughter. But uh, that's brilliant, brilliant. Uh, couldn't say it any better. Uh, and Nancy, there are so many veterans uh, who have served in peacetime or wartime where maybe if uh, we were able to match them up with a dog or a cat or another animal, uh, it uh, can be a great companion for them, especially in their latter years. I mean, it is, I mean, and, and to that point, there's so much bureaucracy that's set up for the purpose of assisting people. And something like this is pretty straightforward and it's very logical. I mean, there's reasons why um, animals are good for health. There's reasons why so many of these programs are successful where you're, you're pairing animals up with people because, I mean, again, you're not fabricating um, the usefulness of what's going on, it's actually a need. I mean, these animals without these people are going to be killed in a shelter. So you're rightfully feeling good about it, and you're actually having a beneficial interaction and relationship. I mean, it's a win-win for everybody. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Hunter, who's calling from Manhattan. Your turn to be heard here on WABC, Hunter. Hey, Curtis. Um uh, I got to tell you a quick uh, story. So I was at the um, Hexter uh, um, ball fields in um, Central Park, and we saw this hawk capture this rat, take the rat on top of the fence, and had the rat on its claws. And then the rat, I mean, and then the hawk went up to a higher fence, and the hawk proceeded to chomp away at the rat. It was just unbelievable to see. It was a real, it was a red tail hawk, and it was in um, it was in um, Central Park. Wow! It was unbelievable. Yeah, Un- unbelievable. Well, remember, Hunter, uh, for a period of time mm-hmm. when the bird watchers were out in force following Flacco, who was that owl who had been uh, released. From the Central Park Zoo, somebody had cut a hole in the uh, in the uh, sort of cover of the cage, and Flacco was flying around, and all the bird watchers were saying, "Well, Flacco will never be able to s- survive on its own. Flacco has never really been in the wild. It's always been hand fed since it was a little chick." And then later on, as they would be following Flacco, who never really left 
the confines of Central Park. Uh, Flocker would be flying in all over the peripheral areas of the park. They noticed that Flocko was dining on rats and mice and other rodents that it would it would find at night since the owls are nocturnal and those rodents and mice and rats are nocturnal and would be able to survive on that. I mean this is this is mother nature's way of of basically controlling that population and never gets discussed whenever we talk about uh, you know uh, rat mitigation controlling of the rats. Well, it's a natural way of doing that, and all we want to do is spend money on pesticides, pesticides, pesticides. Yeah, you know what? And actually, unfortunately, that. I think we lost uh, Nancy there. Are you there, Nancy? Uh, hello. Yes. Yeah. Hello. Okay. Uh, no, actually, yeah. it was oh, Hunter. No. <laughs> Hunter who must have been dive bombing, trying to uh, recreate what he saw in that hawk. As that yeah. hawk snatched up that rat and then took him to a much higher level in the park and began to dine on the rat. And and we were talking uh, last week about the the red uh, red tail hawk that had uh, passed away. And there's only I think about uh, something like between twelve and fifteen uh, pairs, like mating pairs. So. There's not that many of them in New York City, but that's unfortunately that's a little concerning that it was eating a rat uh, because, you know, the idea of what the rat might have eaten. I mean, hopefully it didn't get into any poison, but, um, yeah, that's uh, that, that concerns me. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Max in Manhattan. Your turn to be heard here on the Animal Welfare Edition at WABC, Max. Yes, Curtis. Thank you for taking my call. Um, Rob Astorino was on this past either Saturday or Friday, and on his show he had on a guest who was giving all the explanations or the explanation on these uh, all these whale deaths. There seemed to be some sort of uh, underwater like electric activity and was making the whales surface, and when they would surface, they would get hit by these boats. I would suggest listening to it because it, it, he can be a lot more detailed, and his guest was a lot more was a lot more detailed than I'm right now. Um, maybe he'll continue with his uh, these interviews in the future. Well, actually, I did listen to most of it because he's on Saturdays. Rob Astorino, former Westchester County Executive from four to five, and I'm on with Anthony Weiner, left versus right, three to four. And you're absolutely right. The uh, woman he had on, who was a guest was explaining why it is so many whales are washing on shore, whether it's sperm whales or humpback whales, incredible numbers, and how their their whole way of being is being thrown off by the sonar, by the sounds, by the explosions. Uh, she was talking specifically, I think, of the Norwegian for, of firm that has the contracts to do that off the south shore of uh, Long Island. And, yeah, she was giving a lot of information that helped explain why it has become such a serious issue. Uh, she criticized Governor Murphy in New Jersey, who does not want to stop uh, putting in the uh, windmills at this point six miles offshore. Uh, she's only asking, and others are only asking, cease and desist until it could be fully studied. And Murphy is stubborn, obstinate on this, you know, he he doesn't at all care about the the whales and the dolphins that are washing ashore. And 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 what's ridiculous too is, I mean, the amount of money that's being put into these PR campaigns 
to convince the public, oh, there's no problem, there's no correlation, this is safe. That's a lot of money that's going into this this public perception as opposed to the money that can be, you know, put into studying, okay, what's the exact effect? Because the point is we know there is an there's there's an actual correlation. The question is how big a correlation is it possible that this can be averted? Is I mean, there could be information that can be gained if they weren't, you know, just trying to cover up what's going on here. That's the problem. No, it was a great show. Uh, in fact, uh, I recommend it highly to everyone interested in this subject. The tragic uh, increase of deaths of all kinds of whales, all kinds of dolphins, up and down the Jersey Shore, south shore of Long Island, all the way down to the uh, Tidewater Peninsula off of Virginia, South Carolina, wherever whales and uh, dolphins are frolicking in the ocean, they seemingly, in large numbers, are now rolling up on shore. And this woman, uh, guest of Rob Astorino, was giving uh, really great information. You could get it on the podcast. All the shows are eventually posted as a podcast. So just go to wabcradio.com. That's WABCradio.com. You can get all of these animal welfare shows that Nancy and I have been doing for over a year. They're all posted. And specifically, Rob Astorino's show that was just on this past Saturday from 4 to 5 with this expert on uh, the mammals out in the oceans and why so many of them are dying uh, and taking the task, especially Governor Murphy, always half in the bag, always smashed, always up, obstinate, stubborn, refusing to allow any, any study at all as to maybe the windmills being built six miles offshore where sonar is used to find the right location on the sea uh, bottom and then blasting caps in order to uh, work its way way deep uh, in the ocean's core so that it could hold up these massive uh, windmills to generate uh, clean energy, green energy. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. The Curtis Sliwa Show presents Curtis's Ark with Nancy Sliwa. Now, with Nancy Sliwa, here's Curtis Sliwa. We will continue to the 12 o'clock hour, and then uh, Dominic Carter will be on from 12 to 1. And I'm on from 1 to 5, substituting for their missing in action, Mama Luke Frank Morano. He's like uh, a beached whale on some beach, uh, either Belmar, Wildwood, or Cape May. Oh, boy. Uh, then I'll be on from uh, 6 to 10, uh, with John Katzmatidis as we substitute for uh, Bernie. No, excuse me, not Bernard McGurk, uh, dearly departed Bernard McGurk, that this very studio is named in honor of, but Sid Rosenberg. And then I finish with the Rip and Reed, uh, 12 to 1, which is Monday, and that will have put me... Curtis is going for the record. 
into a situation, Nancy, where I will have broken the record that I just set three months ago with the Guinness World Book of Records of Broadcasting. I will have completed 40 hours within a 72-hour time period. Uh, that's three days of broadcasting. Yeah, that's um, that's quite a lot. That's an accomplishment, Curtis. Well, uh, I'll accomplish it. And I'll be standing at the end of those 40 hours. Unfortunately, um, last week I had to swear off thoroughbred racing, and I will never go to a track again. I will not go uh, to my yearly trip to Saratoga, to the backstretch. I will not go to Belmont, uh, the third uh, leg of the Triple Crown that is coming up, the Belmont Stakes. I will not go to Aqueduct. I will not go to any trotter tracks, Yonkers, wherever it is. Not going anymore. Twelve horse deaths in two months at Churchill Downs. There's now federal investigations. These horses, I mean, they're in the prime of their lives. These are three, four-year-olds just dying on the track and then having to be euthanized. Where are we with all of this, Nancy? Well, yeah, so the uh, now they had another horse that was euthanized at Churchill Downs. And, you know, uh, it was running around the, the track, and its legs gave way. It fell face first into the track. It's seven years old. I mean, no known health issues. Uh, but, of course, right away they had to euthanize it. So, yet again, there's another situation that defies explanation. And it's, you know, hopefully it, it really is going to just call enough attention where they stop doing this already. And there's no doubt in my mind, having been in the backstretch, having seen how the thoroughbreds are cared for, there's a lot of good care. But when it comes to winning purses and the money that's available uh, for the owners and the operators because of the competitive nature, millions and millions of dollars are at stake, these horses are being juiced up. And the science is probably ahead of the investigators so that more and more of these horses are going to be dying in the prime of their life, horrible deaths because if they break their legs, because they have such magnificent large bodies that have been developed, it's an inordinate amount of weight to be on those piano-style, uh, very thin legs. When those legs snap, it's not like a human being. You put a cast on it, and after a period of time, it heals itself. They have to euthanize the horse because the horse will not be able to walk, will not be able to move, and will suffer. And this is, I mean, it's so obvious the reason for all these horses dying. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much money to be made in the in the gambling. So, of course, it's going to be susceptible to this. And, you know, there's nothing else for, for them to do but try and uh, juice the horses up. And unfortunately, you know, they're, I mean, they're, they're unwilling participants and, you know, there's no repercussion when this happens. I mean, you know, the, the horses' lives are completely insignificant. I mean, that's like besides the point. So, you know, again, if, if people want to gamble, I mean, there's a lot of ways they can do so without having to involve a creature that, you know, again, isn't a willing participant. And by the way, what was brought up last week, I hadn't even thought about it. Uh, because I had spent time from time to time at tracks when the race goes off and they're out of the starting gates and they're coming around that first quarter and then they're halfway through the race and now they start to pack up. And when they come by that three-quarter pole 
and people in the uh, in the stands are screaming, you know, yo, hook him, hook him, because they got a lot of money at stake. I forgot the jockeys pull out those whips and they start whipping them. I mean, whipping them hard, and uh, it never really, it never correlated for me like that. That that's we wouldn't tolerate that if that was being done in front of us. You're whipping a horse. But in the midst of a race, it's quite all right to just whip him, and hopefully you'll whip him right into victory. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just it's barbaric, the whole thing. I Again, I don't understand why people derive enjoyment from watching this this type of abuse, but it, it's easy to, to fix this. I mean, you know, with all these deaths, I, I think if that isn't enough of a justification to call an end to this industry, I mean, how many more do you need to die? Let's go to John in the Bronx. Your turn to be heard here on the Animal Welfare Edition of WABC, Johnny. Hello? Yes, John. Yeah, you're 100% right. I mean, it, it's a culture thing. You know, look at the bulls in Spain, the same thing. You're 100% right. I want to talk about animal sanctuaries because, you know, I saw a video. A guy in Indonesia or something had all this land, and he had like 50 dogs he was taking care of. You know how much land we have upstate New York? And what are we doing? We use it to feed cattle with corn and soy, GMO corn and soy. So it's like we should have a sanctuary where we can have the animals and go there. I love you guys. No, in fact, uh, when I ran for mayor, uh, Nancy, against Eric Adams, that's one of the things that we had said. Instead of euthanizing the dogs, cats, and other animals in our shelter system that we spend millions of dollars of tax dollars for to kill animals, why not find people who are living upstate, some of them who are not able to make ends meet, but they're sitting on a lot of land, unused land, and let them be caretakers for the animals. Subsidize the care. It's a lot cheaper than storing animals in these shelters where they really have very little attention, very little care. And then they can live a full life on a in an area in which they have the run of the fields, uh, of the corrals, or wherever it is that they're able to get out there, play, frolic, uh, and enjoy their lives. I mean, it, it makes it makes much much more sense. Um, you know, the same way that you would have uh, state-sponsored adoptions, things like that. You're just recognizing that it makes more sense. Uh, people personally caring for them, and then also it's a uh, you know, in terms of having the shelters and things like that, the level of again bureaucracy and red tape is ridiculous. One of these places that, you know, I, I had started following a, a bunch of years back in India, it's like Animal Aid Unlimited. The amount of things that they do in the most rural, I mean, you know, like the, the grounds are dusty. I mean, it's outdoors. You know, the minute you get into New York City, oh, you need a permit. Oh, you oh, you having an animal there? The, the reasons why they prohibit having animals in stores. Oh, you can't have a cat in a store. It's unsanitary. There's all of these regulations that go so far to prevent animals from doing what they're doing in a natural way. And that's part of the problem. They have to just ease up these regulations. There's absolutely nothing wrong with living side by side with animals. Everyone's doing it in their home. It's happening everywhere. But why is it that, you know, they make it so different in any of these other capacities? This is why shelters can't open. This is why people can't have pets in their homes, why landlords are able to kick them out, why they can't be in stores, as opposed to, you know, um, and actually doing like rodent and pest control and people are using poisons, just using logic. I mean, start using logic. It makes a lot of sense.
And, in fact, today when I was marching uh, with the veterans uh, and the guardian angels in the annual uh, Memorial Day Parade on Metropolitan Avenue from the American Legion Hall towards uh, Woodhaven uh, Boulevard, I noticed a number of storefronts that were now empty. They hadn't been emptied before. Large storefronts would have been the perfect opportunity to house animals in those storefronts because people walk by there every day, and you know what would happen. They would see the little doggy in the window, or they would see the cat in the window. They might not be able to walk in and maybe bring that dog or cat home that day, but you know every time they pass, they're going to look in that window, that dog or cat's going to look at them, and they're going to, they're going to melt, and they're going to yeah, eventually you, bring yeah, that you, pet home. You develop an affection and a fondness, and you look forward to seeing them. And that's what makes you want to adopt them. I mean, the way the the city shelter system is run, they hide them away where no one ever gets to see them. No one gets to fall in love with them. That's the problem. Let's go to Stephen in New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here on the Animal Welfare Edition, exclusive to WABC, Steve. Hey, thanks so much. You know, that's so funny. Way back when, there was a cartoon, that monkey in the, min- in the window, which you can't say anymore. But, hey, you know what? I just got a exit. 168 off the parkway, so you know where I am. You know, I tried to get a dog from the rescue, and they did everything about me. They wanted to know my money income. They wanted to know my family. They wanted to know how I live. They made it so difficult. Rescue dogs can cost up to $1,000 now. So the whole concept of rescue dogs is, is ridiculous. My new puppy, Costs $200 from Craigslist, and they didn't care how I lived. Now, that is how to acquire a dog. What do you think about that? I mean, you know, I agree that there's there are some places and certainly a lot of hurdles, and that makes it where someone is going to try to go in an alternative way. So, yeah, I mean, to your point, like the, the, the money associated with it, the cost, some of the nonprofits, and I understand why they do it. Uh, you know, they're trying to just, um, you know, fund uh, these things. And the the biggest thing you can fund through is the adoption fees. So, you know, they're they're trying to just exist. But this is where, you know, the city and the state they should be making these things, um, you know, like almost free of charge because you want to encourage this. And then, you know, again, this is where you know it gets these industries going. There there needs to be more veterinarians. There needs to be more things like that. Animals are part part of people's lives, so the cost hurdle the, that that is ridiculous. And and again, then you don't want to encourage people to be going elsewhere because then you're going to encourage the breeders, which isn't going to lead to maybe the best sort of a upbringing either. So yeah, I think you have to lower the cost. We'll be back same time, same place next week with our next edition of the Animal Animal Welfare Hour.